I'd like to hold up for our thinking today um, a passage from the fourth chapter of Daniel. And the whole chapter is behind what I want to share with you, but I'm just going to read the opening few verses, and I'd invite you uh, at some point to very soon read the whole chapter. It's quite an engaging story. So beginning at verse 1 of Daniel 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that live throughout the earth, may you have abundant prosperity. The signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me, I am pleased to recount. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His sovereignty is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living at ease in my home and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that frightened me. My fantasies in bed and the visions of my head terrified me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me in order that they might tell me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not tell me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and who is endowed with the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream. O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that you are endowed with the spirit of the holy gods, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Hear the dream that I saw, and tell me its interpretation. Well, it's a dangerous moment. Daniel is somewhere he never expected to be. He never wanted to be. He's far from home. He's in exile in Babylon. And he's confined to the service of King Nebuchadnezzar. This king is the most powerful man in the entire world of the 6th century BC. This Nebuchadnezzar had campaigned all over the ancient Near East and created a vast empire. He had built up the city of Babylon into the most glorious, massive, and elaborate city in the world. And as he stood on the roof of his palace, Nebuchadnezzar had a lot that he could be proud of. The palace from which he surveyed Babylon had huge courts, reception rooms, throne room, residences, and even possibly the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, a vaulted terrace structure uh, with trees and plants and a water supply built for his mountain queen. The palace adjoined a processional avenue that Nebuchadnezzar paved with limestone and decorated with lion figures. You get the idea here. This guy was amazing. And now this man, this most powerful man in the world, is scared. He's scared by something that can seem so unreal, so intangible, like an invisible germ or virus. But in this case, it's a dream. He summons his counselors. Now they recall what happened the last time their master had a dream. Many of them failed and they died. Later in the story, this most powerful man in the world will go completely nuts. If there's anything more dangerous than a tyrant, it's a scared tyrant. And if there's anything more scary than a scared tyrant, it's an insane one. In an urgently troubled time, fear and insanity are deadly. The situation in our story is like a room full of gas. Any spark can make it all blow up. So into this situation comes a Jewish man named Daniel. 
brought to Babylon as a captive early in Nebuchadnezzar's career. He was groomed to be some kind of court servant or advisor to the king. His colleagues, the fellow analysts in the Babylon intelligence agency, have all failed. And now, all eyes are on Daniel. I feel we increasingly live in a Nebuchadnezzar kind of world. Rather than one, though, there are many people all over the world who have frightful power, chemical weapons, nuclear weapons, bioweapons, terrifyingly improvised bombs that can be hidden in trash cans and detonated with cell phones or kitchen timers. And this enormous power is in the hands of many who are deeply afraid. And worse, some have allowed their hate, their fear, their hunger for power, their own inner evil, their resentment over injuries and injustices, some real, some imagined, drive them to a heedless insanity. And on top of that, we face emergencies such as the current pandemic, on top of locust plagues, earthquake storms, and all sorts of other crises that all add to the pressure put on us and on the leaders of the world. We live in a room full of explosive gas, fearful that any minute, somebody's going to light a match. Into this moment stepped Daniel, who became God's ambassador in that moment. And I think there's a lot we can learn about Daniel, uh, about how to operate in such a time. The first thing we notice is that Daniel found a way to fit in. Of course, he had every reason not to fit in. I mean, this is the nation that brought his people into bondage, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, defiled the holy vessels, brought them to Babylon, all of that. They forcibly conscripted Daniel and others like him into the service of the king. As a sign of their subjugation, Nebuchadnezzar even humiliated Daniel and his friends by giving them pagan names, a name, quote, after the name of my gods. Daniel had every reason to hate this guy. He could justly abhor and loathe everything about Babylon, but he didn't. Instead, Daniel made a hard, complex choice. He chose to engage. We read in Daniel 1 that he took classes at Babylon University in the languages and arts of Babylon. Now, this would have included all the subjects you might expect, but that education also included occult, uh, astrology, divination, mediumship, dream interpretation, stuff forbidden in the Torah. Look at Deuteronomy 18. Daniel didn't refuse to do that. In fact, Daniel excelled at this stuff. These things prohibited by the Torah, Daniel mastered them. Like many who try to serve in the realms of politics or the military or intelligence, even some police work, Daniel had to live in a zone in which others could easily fault them, seeing them as compromising. And also, Daniel around the king doesn't talk about the covenant, the Torah, the Exodus, or Judaism. He doesn't remind Nebuchadnezzar that he destroyed Yahweh's temple and so he has little chance Yahweh will favor him. He doesn't demand Nebuchadnezzar be circumcised or become a proselyte. Given his approved place in the canon, Daniel is here not caving or being culturally co-opted. Somehow, Daniel finds a way to adapt and be present within this alien, hostile, evil culture, the enemy of God. But Daniel fit in in such a way that he was in place when God needed a witness close to the king. Now, I'm not saying, sure, go out and take courses in the black arts, inner secular pagan culture, take up its worst features, be careless, and you'll be fine. This is risky and complicated stuff. What I'm saying is that God does not want 
the Nebuchadnezzars of this world to be without a witness. Though Daniel learned to fit in, he did not really become Babylonianized. In addition to fitting in, Daniel found a way to stand out. He never really became one of them, but he manifests a distinctive identity. And you see it every time he enters the story. How did he do that? We consistently read of Daniel that in the midst of his pagan environment, Daniel excelled. You know, excellence always stands out. He excelled in the performance of his duties, even though that raised a question in the minds of a lot of his Jewish friends. Can't you hear them? I don't know how Daniel can claim to be a good Jew and spend all that time with astrologers and sorcerers and necromancers and diviners. How in the world could he do that? Yet Daniel became God's point man for a vital task. Another key to Daniel's fitting in, but also standing out, is that Daniel created some boundaries for his own life. Chapter 1 tells us a really weird story. The Hebrew captives arrive in Babylon. They're given great rooms in the dormitory. They start training for their court service. And the palace staff then bring them a tray loaded with the best Babylonian food and wine. I can imagine these four Jewish guys looking at each other and saying, uh... Does anybody know if, if we Jews can actually eat this? And after a moment, somebody says, I don't even know what this is. With no idea what to do, Daniel made a kind of radical choice. They would eat only vegetables and drink only water. Now, nothing in the Bible teaches or requires vegetarianism or abstinence from wine. But Daniel knew he needed some kind of boundary, something daily, something intimate, something bound up with his very existence. And he decided it would be food. So this man who had to live every day on the other side of a line, pretty clearly drawn in Scripture, realized that to survive he had to draw some other lines. Daniel manifested the presence and the reality of God in a way that his pagan colleagues and superiors could see. Nebuchadnezzar says Daniel is one in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. I don't even want to begin to imagine in the pagan theologically chaotic mind of Nebuchadnezzar what he would possibly have meant by that expression. I'm sure the plural he uses is not related to a Trinitarian view of God. Still, the pagan king could look at this Jewish man, a member of a defeated race, a discredited religion, a destroyed nation, and say, everything that I know that is real about the divine is present in this guy. Beyond that, Daniel could also see how God was working in the life of this pagan ruler. It would have been easy for him to say, King, your pagan mind is so full of error and idolatry, I can't imagine anything you dream could possibly be the truth. Or you can imagine, some theologian might say, but you don't belong to the shared community of reading that I participate in, so I can't, really can't say anything meaningful to you. Or, hey, King, there's no real meta-narrative we can turn to. This dream can only reveal more of your own social vision, blah, blah, blah. No, Daniel just realized that God's truth would somehow come through. Daniel could read the eternal truth of the message of God's revealed redemptive purpose in the story of pagan Nebuchadnezzar's dream. A message utterly concealed to Nebuchadnezzar's counselors, a word of truth from beyond, way beyond. So walking into a room filled with gas fumes that was the upset king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, We've noticed Daniel could confront the fear and intensity of the moment because Daniel found a way to fit in. And he also found a way to stand out. I also, though, notice a third thing about Daniel. Daniel shows a striking tenderness toward Nebuchadnezzar. Now recall just who this guy is. This is the guy 
who had slowly strangled Jerusalem with a bone-crushing siege in which starvation pushed the Jerusalemites to cannibalism. This is the guy who then demolished the Temple of Solomon, looted the precincts of their holy objects, which were brought to Babylon and later subjected to sacrilege. So to a frightened Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel might be tempted to say, well, Nebuchadnezzar, your sins are catching up with you. God is going to burn it all down. Imagine what Daniel have said if he had fallen into the polarized political rhetoric of our day. He'd have hit social media and the talk shows and analyzed all the ways that Nebuchadnezzar was a failed ruler of a failing state, and he would have pushed his own program, his own party, his own candidate, and the kingdom of God would have receded into the background, as it always does when partisan rhetoric preempts redemptive love. But Daniel shows a genuine tenderness for the tyrant. In chapter 419, Daniel wishes this dream and its meaning were for the king's enemies, not for him. And the dream, the king saw this great tree nourishing and shading everyone brutally cut down by some holy watcher from heaven. The tree stump is rained on but not uprooted and an iron band clamps the stump to slow its decomposition so that it wouldn't be invaded by parasites. Daniel informs Nebuchadnezzar that he, Nebuchadnezzar, is the tree and the tree's felling points to a time of bestial insanity. This could have been a source of real pleasure to Daniel, but he shows tender compassion. Daniel stresses the devastating reality of the coming insanity, but he ensures the king that there is hope of restoration. That iron band around the stump points to divine mercy. Insane, dangerous times, even times of grief, anger, and outrage, still need to be times of tenderness, even for our enemies. Daniel had seen a goodly share of death and suffering all caused by this king. Nevertheless, Daniel wishes no harm on the king. So when this dangerous, powerful man enters a moment of vulnerability, Daniel's voice sounds notes of reason and compassion. He wants the king redeemed, not replaced, healed, not harmed. But today, we tend to think reason and compassion imply lowering God's standards of righteousness. But this isn't the case with Daniel. Daniel honestly witnesses to God's standards of justice. In his tenderness, Daniel speaks soberly and with restraint about God's moral order. The dream story is all about power and pride, the true trademark features of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has got to learn two big truths. First, there is only one all-powerful sovereign God. And number two, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not him. Nebuchadnezzar will lose the one thing that really was his glory, his charismatic, incisive mind. This mind will now descend into bestiality. Nebuchadnezzar will have to be driven insane to see the insanity of his life all along. So Daniel pleads with the king to break off from his sins, practice righteousness, stop oppression. He promises God will be gracious, but Nebuchadnezzar does not heed. And then comes the night when that brilliant, arrogant mind of Nebuchadnezzar descends into darkness. Now in the end, Nebuchadnezzar was lucky. He got the message. Nebuchadnezzar recovers, confesses the lordship of God, and admits that his own pride has been humbled. And it's revealing to compare Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation at the beginning of Daniel 4 with his confession at the end. The first is the word of a fan. 
But the second is the word of a follower. The speaker of the first is impressed. The speaker of the second is convinced. All because of Daniel. Daniel found a way to fit in. He didn't compromise or cave, but he stood out. And he truly loved his enemy. And he did not flinch from God's just requirements. Daniel was the breeze of fresh air that blew the explosive gas out of the room and made a new set of possibilities happen. I don't know about you, but the old prayer, I want to be a Daniel, that old song we sang in Vacation Bible School, I really would like to be a Daniel. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for people like Daniel. We don't know what the crazy, strange calculus is that produces a person like this. But each of us in our own way would like to be like Daniel. We want to engage our culture. We want to stand out for excellence, to stand out as representing your reality. And we want to be people noted for our tender love, even for our enemies. In these very troubled times in which we live, Father, where there is fear and there is insanity, May we, like Daniel, be the breeze that blows the explosive gas out of the room and opens up a new realm of possibility for everyone. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.